0: Hey, what's good everyone? Before we get into this episode, I wanna ask you all a little question. Let's say death approaches you one day and says, hey, you want my job? What would you say? That's the idea that kicks off The Wolf's Curse by Jessica Vitalis. And in this episode, I sit down with the author to talk all about the story behind the story, where it came from, how she developed it, the character of Gage and the wolf, and how she came up with this unique take on the concept of death. We also look at her writing career that spans more than 13 years and how she landed a six-figure, two-book deal. But I think I've talked enough. You want to hear from the author. So kick back, relax, and enjoy. In this episode, we are talking about the recently released book, The Wolf's Curse, available as of September 21st through Greenwillow HarperCollins. And this book, in my opinion, offers a very unique and very human depiction of the Grim Reaper. But that's just one small part of the story. For the entire thing, we are turning to author Jessica Vitalis. Jessica, welcome to the show. It is great to have you here.
1: Thanks. I'm really excited to be here chatting with you tonight.
0: All right. All right. So uh, I'd like to start by asking about the various themes in the book, uh, keeping in mind that this is geared towards like middle school readers. How did you craft everything to kind of appeal to the, uh, the younger audience?
1: You know, when I was first thinking about writing a story with a Grim Reaper as a narrator, first of all, the idea originally came to me because I was standing in front of my bookshelves and a story leaped out at me. And that was The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak, which is a brilliant story set in Nazi Germany. And it's the story of a foster girl who is sent to another family, but it is narrated by death. And that's the real brilliance in the story. So I decided that I wanted to try to take that idea, the idea of death as a narrator, and recreate it for the middle grade audience. But as you said, that can be something very, very frightening. So I started to think about how we usually talk about Grim Reapers in society. And we often portray them as something very scary. This dark figure, shrouded in black cloth and carrying a scythe. And so I decided to start playing with these tropes and turn them on their head. So the first thing that I wanted to do was make my Grim Reaper a female. And then I thought, well, if if I'm really going to capture the middle grade audience, why don't I make it an animal rather than this human-like character? And so I started playing around with different animals. And first I thought maybe my Grim Reaper would be a crow, but there were a few problems with crows. One, crows are black. And I think that perpetuate some of the harmful tropes and stereotypes that I was wanting to stay away from. The other problem from a purely craft perspective is that crows can fly. So if you're writing a story and your grim reaper can just grab this hole and fly away, that doesn't really lend itself to much creative content in terms of conflict. So then I knew that it was going to have to be some type of four-legged animal and the wolf was just the one that jumped out at me. And as soon as I thought of it, I just knew that it was going to be the way to go. The problem that I had was that my story is set in sort of French-inspired country. And I wanted my wolf to be white, but the only white wolves are Arctic wolves. And that obviously is not going to work in a French-inspired country. So I had to invent a great white wolf. So I created all sorts of problems for myself. But at the end of the day, I'm really happy with what came out of it. And I do think that it's, you know, it is something that's accessible for middle grade readers. But what I'm hearing back from older readers is that there's themes that really resonate with people of all ages in this story. Uh, Such as? The death and grief, but also the hope and healing that comes along with it.
0: Okay. And I definitely think, uh, uh, from what I've read, and I'm only like a couple chapters into it, that in terms of, of like the writing style, it's not really like a kid book. Like, the writing is very, very mature. It's a great story. And I love the narration from the point of view of death. And Death is a snarky person. <laughs> wow. I am... Which I I absolutely love. I absolutely love that. The snark. I love the humor. I love the very, like, honesty of it. You know, like, Death is tired. De- Death is more like 700 years old. The Great White Wolf was a person before they were kind of... sounds like they were kind of, like, suckered into taking on the mantle of Death. And now they're looking for someone to basically take their place because they're tired and they want to you know, go on to, like, what's next or go back to being a human. And so they eye this uh 12-year-old named Gage who has the unique ability to actually see death. No one else can. I think it's, like, two other people can, can see death. That whole thing actually makes Gage almost like a pariah in his own society because he happens to see death. And then, like, the, I think, like, the mistress of the community leader dies. So everyone sees him as being, like, cursed or what have you. But it seems like death's ploy is to take Gage's grandfather and they say, okay, I will let your, you know, you know, grandpa go, but you got to take my place.
1: Yeah. That's the gist of it. I mean, so, well, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but basically the wolf is waiting around for the chance for Gage to really need her and to try to earn her trust. But you mentioned earlier the snarky voice of the wolf. And that's something that was really important to me because again, I didn't want, I wanted to make this book fun. And so how do you take a story that's about death and that's about grief and somehow make it still enjoyable? So part of that is diving into the fantasy world. Part of that is really getting into how death feels about her position. And so that was one of the first questions I asked myself was, okay, well, if death is going to be my narrator, how does she feel about this job? Well, being death probably really sucks. Like that really can't be a lot of fun, right? Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so that's where I was coming from is, you know, she's who would want this job? Of course she's tired and she's miserable. And she, as you said, I don't want to give too much away, but she was tricked into it. And so she really needs this boy because he's the only one alive who can see And and therefore, he's the only one alive who can take her place.
0: Mm -hmm. How did you go about crafting the character in terms of Death's personality?
1: That is an interesting question. So I sat down to write this story. The first thing that I wanted to do was just some craft writing, some brainstorming to see if a voice popped out at me. I actually wrote an entire first draft of this story, I should say, and I threw it out. So I wrote the first draft in about 30 days and I sent it off to a beta reader And my beta reader said, you know, the story's fine. Technically, there's not anything wrong with it. The writing is literary and it's pretty. But you wrote this entire story with death as the narrator and there's no death in your book and there are no themes. And I just don't think it's going to resonate with the reader. Obviously not what I wanted to hear, but she was completely right. So I threw the entire manuscript out and I started over. And one of the things that I knew was that I had to find a voice to tell the story Yes, Death was the narrator in the first draft, but it was this very generic, just sort of authority figure telling you this very boring story. So I sat down to do some brainstorming. And the first thing that happened was the wolf's voice came to me in the form of the prologue. That's actually the prologue in the published story. That's almost exactly what came to me. And the minute the wolf's voice popped into my head, it was no longer my story. I don't feel like I really had any choice at all at that point, I was just typing as fast as I could to keep up with where the wolf was taking me next. And so as far as the wolf's voice, I mean, she probably has quite a bit more of my snark than I would like to admit. <laughs> People always ask, like, which character are you the most invested in? I, I I say that I'm one third Gage, who's a very sweet, innocent, naive boy. And then He has a sidekick, Rue, who's this very practical, no-nonsense character. So I'm one-third of each of them, and I'm definitely at least a third wolf with the snark. Good to
0: know these things.
1: Good to know. Yeah, yeah. So, (laughs) How
0: long would you say you had to spend building the world of The Wolf's Curse before you were like, okay, now we're going to actually get into writing this thing?
1: That was also something that happened with that second first draft. So the first first draft, again, completely generic, nondescript world, knew that I had to throw that away. So I stepped back and I started thinking about what kind of world I wanted to create. And I had been an exchange student in high school. I lived in a very small fishing village on the northern coast of Germany in the Baltic Sea. And I had always wanted to write a story set in a fishing village. But at the same time, I had just vacationed in France and I was just a little bit obsessed with all things French. So I decided to combine the two. And so once I had my French inspired fishing village, I decided that this draft was going to be this historical novel, sort of maybe quasi, not quite medieval, not quite Renaissance, but something in that territory. Of course, it's fantasy, so I didn't have to be too specific. And then I started to think about if You live in a medieval fishing village and you don't have access to all of the science and all of the tools that we have. What do you think about the world around you? And particularly, what do you think about death and grief? So for instance if they're staring out at the ocean every day when you look at large bodies of water oftentimes you can't really tell where the water ends and the sky begins so to me it would make logical sense that they believe that there's actually a sea in the sky and so when they look up at the stars at night they're thinking that those are lanterns lit by their loved ones as they travel up to the sea in the sky to sail into eternity so the world building really came naturally as i wrote my story as soon as i figured out the setting the world building just kind of came to me and I really just did enough research to keep myself from getting into too much trouble in terms of, you know, putting things into this historical time period that absolutely couldn't have been there.
0: I feel like research is the best slash worst part of like writing a book because on one hand, it's just fun. You can be like, oh, this I didn't know and that and this and that. The bad part comes when you realize, oh, I spent like three months researching this thing. I should probably write eventually.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and so much of it doesn't go into your book. So I actually spent more time researching death and grief rituals than probably anything else. Because I knew, again, I wanted to write this fun fantasy. I did not want to write about realistic death and grief rituals. But I didn't really know what that would look like when I started. So I just sat down at the computer and started Googling death and grief. And there are just all sorts of fascinating ways that we as human beings process death and the afterlife. Um, But I knew that I couldn't use any of that because that would be appropriating somebody else's culture, which is something I definitely wanted to stay away from. But what it did is open my mind to the idea that there are all these different ways. and, And that's when I got the idea to just really dig deep into the world they were in and start to put myself in their shoes and think about how they might organically come up with some ideas about death and the afterlife based on their
0: world. Okay. This next question is a touch political, but I am curious because you did mention it. Uh, cultural a cultural appropriation, why did you want to avoid uh, going into that area?
1: It's just something that I'm hyper aware of right now. I think um, for so long, other communities and other cultures have had their cultures appropriated by white writers. And um, that's just not something that I'm willing to do. So for me, it's just was something to stay away from. And then I'm always trying to make sure that I'm not stealing other people's ideas and using them for my own benefit.
0: Okay. All right. Changing death from a male to female character, how do you say that changes the overall personality of death?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, I suppose it made. Death a little bit more like me as a woman and as a mother. And I think that probably comes through in the story now that you've asked it. I don't know that I ever realized that until this very moment, but I think maybe that's where some of Death's backstory comes from. And I don't want to talk too much about that because it does, it does give things away, but it probably just allowed me to access her humanity in a way that I may not have been able to do if I had kept her a male character.
0: Okay. All right. All right. Um, now, this book is uh, your debut novel, and Correct. again, uh, released uh, through Greenwillow HarperCollins, uh, certainly a very, very big name in the publishing world. And mm-hmm. you uh, you have landed a two-book, six-figure deal with a story. That's huge for, for debut writers. Um, right. When you were pitching this, did you have any expectations as to the results?
1: So... There is a very complicated answer to that question, namely the fact that I had been writing for 14 years before I got this book deal. So we oftentimes like to see these big deals and think, oh, that person's so lucky they had this overnight success. I wrote for a full 13 years, actually, before I got my first book deal. I went through two different agents. So fast forward 13 years. I had just left my first agent. This was in January of 2020. I... Didn't know if I was ever going to get another agent, much less a book deal. And I was holding this manuscript, The Wolf's Curse, in my hands. My agent hadn't sent it out, my first agent hadn't sent it out to anybody. And so I really didn't know what to expect. I knew that I loved this manuscript more than anything else I had ever written. So I had that going for me. And I knew that after having written six books, it may not sell. But I decided that it was time, after having been with my agent for seven years, it was time to give something else a try. And the bottom line is that I got really, really lucky. So my story is a combination—a combination of perseverance and coming across the right person at the right time. Because I happened to be in a mentoring group with a writer by the name of Erin Entrada Kelly, who is a Newbery Award winner, and Erin out a call behind the scenes of this mentoring group that we were both in saying, I'm teaching a class at UCLA and I would love to take somebody's first five pages and just workshop it with my class and I'll send you my feedback and I'll send you their feedback. And this was right when I had parted with my agent, right when I'm getting ready to query for new agents. So I thought that is an opportunity I am not going to pass up to get feedback from a writer of her caliber. Sent my pages off, didn't hear anything for about a month. And then On a Saturday evening, my email dinged and it was a note from Erin Entrada Kelly saying, "Um, I'm teaching this book tomorrow, but I just want to let you know that I am obsessed with this story. Well, of course, after having written for 13 years, that was like such a big, important moment for me. So that gave me so much hope that, okay, maybe this story is going to be the big breakthrough moment for me. And I sent her back a note saying, thank you. That means so much to me. I'm querying, you know, blah, blah, blah. So the next day, I wasn't expecting to hear back from her, but of course she has much better things to do than get back to me. I thought maybe it would be a couple of weeks. She sends me another email and she says, I just want to let you know that I taught this book today to my class, but I don't have any feedback. And in fact, I used it as an example of what really good writing looks like. And if you'd like to send me the whole manuscript, I'd be happy to take a look at it and see if it's ready to pass on to my agent. Now. Her agent is Sarah Crow of Pippin Properties, who's arguably one of the best Kidlet agents in the world. Well, I don't really think it's arguable. I think she is the best Kidlet agent in the world, but some might argue. In any case, she's very, very good at what she does. And so, needless to say, I was out of my mind at that point, but still very realistic, right? I had been doing this for 13 years at that point. I figured the odds of Aaron loving the rest of my story enough to even pass on to her agent were slim. The odds of her agent loving it enough to offer representation were slim. And then the odds of getting a book deal, of course, were like that seemed outside the realm of possibility to me at that point. But I went ahead and sent my manuscript off to her on Sunday afternoon. So we're talking about a period of you know 12 hours, essentially, since I first heard from her or maybe a little bit more. And I tried to put it out of my head and I thought I was just going to get back to work on the next thing. And I woke up Monday morning to another email from Erin Entrada Kelly. And this email said, I love your story. And I sent it to Sarah and she loves your story and she wants to set up the call. So within 48 hours, my literary godmother, Erin Entrada Kelly, completely changed the course of my life. And I had an offer of representation from Sarah Crow and signed with her and We did a couple of rounds of very light edits, just a few minor things to tweak and went out on submission at the end, like toward the end of April of 2020. And I got a book offer a couple of weeks later, which wasn't even on my radar at that point. Like I'd been doing this for so many years, I expected it to be literally months before I heard anything. So when that email came across my desk, a note from Sarah, the subject was, you have an offer. I literally just started screaming at the top of my lungs. (laughs) It was the furthest thing from my mind at that point.
0: I would be dancing in the streets.
1: If it, it I were in your position, yeah,
0: right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I have two teenage daughters, and they happened to be home at the time. And one of them was right outside my office door, and she heard me screaming, and she ran inside and turned on her video camera and filmed the hoping. So there's actually on my blog post on my website, there's a picture of the moment when I am reading because at that point I just saw that I had an offer. I hadn't read the email, so I didn't know it was from Green Willow, who has always been one of my dream publishers because they just produce the most beautiful stories. And I certainly didn't know that it was a huge deal or that it was a two book deal. So she filmed to me as I kept reading and I eventually just evolved into a puddle of like a screaming mess. And my daughters and I were jumping up and down and screaming and hugging. And Sarah's email, she's always very, very cool. And her email was just, do you have time to chat? So I read the email and I typed back, yes, but let me finish ugly crying first. So I finished my ugly crying and dancing in the streets with my daughter. And then I called her back and I tried to be all professional and cool. Like it was no big deal that I got this big book deal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. no
0: big deal. No No big big deal.
1: deal. I do this every day.
0: Right. (laughs) But I love the story. Now, you mentioned earlier that you have been writing for uh, 13 years. You had done six books prior to The Wolf's Curse. What do you, and this is entirely like a hypothetical question, but what about this book do you think made it such a success?
1: Wow. That's a big question. First of all, My first couple of books were really, really bad. And I don't say that to get any type of accolades or have you say, no, I'm sure it wasn't that bad. It was so bad, my first book, that I sent it out to a variety of agents. I got a lot of interest off the query. I actually got an agent to email me back and say, I was really excited to read your book. And I was so disappointed by the pages. You have no idea how to write a scene. You have no idea how to write a sentence. You have no idea how to write a story. So
0: that is when horrible. I see that my <laughs> Jeez. I mean, I'm all for like, I'm all for it, like, was, all for it like, was pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm all for like, honest feedback. But wow.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I feel really lucky that I have a pretty tenacious personality. So I had already committed at that point to becoming a writer. So at first, I was pretty ticked off. And then I was like, well, He's probably right. I probably don't know how to write a book. So I guess I should maybe learn. So I started studying every book I could find. I read craft books. I started studying Newbery Award winners because I've always loved really beautiful literary writing. And so I just kept writing. I wrote my second book. I wrote my third book. My third book's the one that I got my first agent with. And that book, we had a few near misses. There were publishers interested, but nobody ultimately took it to acquisitions. And then I switched gears because those had been primarily contemporary stories. And I had always secretly wanted to write a fantasy, but I thought to write a fantasy, you had to be this super creative person with like, I don't know, maybe like piercings and tattoos and dyed hair and you had to express your creativity in every possible way. And I never thought of myself as a creative person. I know that sounds silly, like it's such a weird stereotype to have, but I had went and got a business degree. I was a businesswoman. I was not a fantasy writer. That's not how, and I think what it really was is what it boils down to for most people is fear, right? Because it was something I knew in my heart that I wanted, but if I tried it and failed, that would hurt a lot more than trying and failing at something that wasn't so near and dear to my heart. So it was after that third book that I got some interest in publishers that I finally, my agent said, you know, You have a lot of talent, you need to figure out what you really want to be writing. So I tried writing a fantasy. I had this idea for The Wolf's Curse, but I think I knew instinctively that I wasn't ready to write it yet. So I went off and I wrote another fantasy and I cut my teeth on learning how to do world building and learning how to write a fantasy story, which is in some ways a different skill set than writing contemporary or realistic stories. And so what makes The Wolf's Curse special I think is number one, just that I finally felt really confident in my writing skills. I felt like I was knew what I was doing to the extent that you can ever really know what you're doing when you're starting a new book because all of them are different. But I felt like I had achieved a certain level of mastery of the craft. And the other thing is that I knew what all the rules were and I knew that I was breaking them and I didn't care because this wolf was so much fun that this was a story that I had to follow and see where it went. So I think it was just a combination of a lot of hard work, the right idea coming along when I was ready for it. And then, of course, the wolf just taking over and running the show.
0: What kept you writing, especially when you get such, you know, pretty vicious feedback from some folks?
1: Yeah, I think partly Again, it comes down to the tenacity. I had set this goal for myself, and once I set a goal for myself, I couldn't control whether I got a publishing deal. That is outside of my control. What I could control was my craft and never giving up and always improving. So with each story, I looked back and I saw that my craft and my skill set was improving, and so that kept me going. And then there was also the matter that I had started writing when my youngest daughter was born. They had grown up watching me pursue this and i couldn't just walk away and say mommy decided to give up that just was never an option for me that's not an example that i would set for my girls so giving up you know of course there were times where i was like why am i doing this but deep inside it never was a serious option for me to walk away and i just love writing so much that i had made the decision when i left my first agent even if i don't get a second agent this is something that i'm going to keep doing because it nourishes something inside of me
0: okay okay what makes a really good agent? Because I'm sure like a lot of respective writers are, are asking that same question. How do I get a really great agent?
1: Yeah, I think what makes a great agent can differ for a lot of people. I mean, my first agent was a great agent. She and I are still friends. I absolutely adore her. And in fact, she helped me look for a second agent. So we did not part on bad terms, but she had signed me as a contemporary realistic writer And so when I started writing fantasy, that was not her wheelhouse. My stories, she loved my writing, but she wasn't passionate about the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell. So that's when it became clear that it was time for us to part ways. But in terms of what makes a really good agent, to me, a couple of things come to play. One is your industry contacts. And that doesn't mean that you have to be an old veteran agent, because I think there are some very young, very new, very hungry agents that are really, really good. But you have to have good mentoring and you have to be with an agency that is established and has good contacts. And you have to have good instincts. So an agent who can give feedback. Some people need a really editorial agent that gives really detailed feedback. Some people just need an agent that can say like, yeah, this generally works. So you have to decide what kind of agent you want from that perspective. And then it really all boils down to communication. You have to trust that your agent is going to respond to you, that they have your back, that they're going to be honest with you. And I think if you have all of those elements together, then it can be a really perfect fit. But what is one Perfect agent for one person isn't necessarily the perfect agent for somebody else.
0: Okay. Working with Aaron and Sarah, you mentioned that they didn't have a ton of edits to make. They more or less liked uh, what you had. But were they able to offer you any key advice or feedback that you think really strengthened the book or strengthened you as a writer?
1: So Aaron didn't offer me any feedback at all. She literally just passed my manuscript on to Sarah as is. Sarah's feedback was, gosh, I'm trying to think. I mean, it was really minor. It was just a tiny little bit more of wanting to understand my main character Gage's backstory. So I had to add a couple of paragraphs of that. And then I think what Sarah really brought to the table in terms of the story was, there are footnotes in my story, and there are also parentheticals in my story. So the wolf directly addresses the reader. And when I wrote the very first draft, almost everything that is now parentheticals in the text was footnotes. And so Sarah pointed out that a lot of editors read on e-readers. They're probably going to miss the footnotes if they show up at all A lot of readers tend to skip footnotes, and so she suggested that I put as many of those footnotes up in the text as I could. So we ended up with just a handful of footnotes, and almost everything went up into the text, and that really changed the flow of the story and I think how the reader experiences the story for the better.
0: Being signed to a book deal, obviously this is every writer's dream, You know, some just um, uh, self-publish, but you could just sign a deal with one of the biggest names out there, six figures, two books. I was curious what are some of the i guess like obligations or rules with a deal like this that you'll be uh sticking to,
1: yeah, so the biggest thing that changes when you have a publication deal is that your time never belong never again belongs to you, so. That's something that you don't think about. I worked for 14 years. I wrote when I wanted to write, when I had family obligations or vacations or anything else that came up, I just didn't write and I didn't worry about it. And I got back to it when I could. As soon as you have a publishing deal, there are dates put into the contracts and you have to execute on those dates. And if you want to get a paycheck anyway. And um, so what happens is an editor, you have your book and that's the most important thing, you know, arguably in the world or certainly in your publishing journey to you. But an editor has dozens of books that they're working on. They're working on several titles a year. They're working over multiple years. They have to juggle all of that. So they don't really care if you have a family vacation scheduled in August, if that's when they need your developmental edits back. So that happened to me this August. I w- I told Martha months in advance, my editor, that I had a family vacation scheduled and it would be great if we could get revisions done around that my revisions were due in the middle of my family vacation. That's just the way it was. And because we're on such a tight schedule in terms of when the books come out, pushing it really wasn't much of an option. My second book, the second round of developmental edits was actually due last Monday. My first book came out Tuesday. So I was doing all of the marketing, and everything that goes into launching a book, and I was doing revisions on my second book all at the same time. So that to me has been the biggest biggest change in terms of being under contract is just you literally, it doesn't matter what you have on your schedule. When you get your past pages and you're given 48 hours, you literally have 48 hours to turn them around. And if you have a full-time job or you have other things on your plate, make it work.
0: Wow. And how are you at deadlines?
1: I'm really good at deadlines. I mean, it's probably that whole MBA thing, right? Like I, I love to have a deadline and And know what I have to get done. And I'm pretty good at pacing myself and figuring out. I'm also a very fast worker. So I think that really helps that comes from the years of experience. Right. And also the self-confidence, because what I see in a lot of the writers I mentor is that sometimes they get paralyzed with fear, the sense of what if I can't do it. But I've written so many books and done so many revisions at this point that I know that there's really nothing you can throw at me that I can't figure out.
0: Okay. How do you sort of like Uh, balance the demands of like your contract with family life
1: yeah, that's, that's always a struggle. I'm really lucky that my girls, first of all, are teenagers. So they don't have the same intense needs as they did when they were toddlers or much younger. That makes life a lot easier. And they're also very supportive of my journey. My husband is very supportive of my journey. So I have had the luxury of just saying, you know, mommy's not available. Or last weekend when I literally had an entire book due and I had, you know, all of these interviews and all of this publicity that I had to do. My younger teenage daughter walked up to me to ask me a question, and my older teenage daughter said, Sienna, she's not mommy in this weekend. (laughs) So, I mean, they know that I'm here, of course, if they really need me, but I'm very lucky that they kind of are letting me do my thing at this point.
0: Okay. Let's talk about release day. Mm -hmm. um, September uh, 21st, uh, so about a week before we're doing this interview, the book is out there. Now, I have heard people react to release day in a number of ways. Some are all about it, others want to run away from it screaming. How were you on release date and what did you have like lined up in terms of appearances or interviews?
1: So the vast majority of my publicity, I was finished with the day before release. So my release date, okay, well, this is a funny story. I haven't shared this with anybody yet. What actually happened, true story of my release date. I got up very, very early that morning thinking that I was going to have a very nice cup of tea out on my back porch, and that's how I was going to start my day before all of the busyness of PR started. However, I have a very, very naughty cat. And my cat, for the first time ever, peed on my couch. So I got up to go downstairs and have my cup of tea and instead had an enormous mess to deal with. So that is the true story behind Jessica's launch day. And um, mostly I made my husband deal with that, for the rest of the day, I went to a couple of bookstores and I did sign-ins. My husband and I went out to lunch and then I had my release party. It was a virtual release party that evening with Erin Traci Kelly. She agreed to host it. So we had this fantastic conversation and I had a bottle of champagne that I was planning to pop afterward, but right before my virtual release, the cat peed on the couch again for the second time on the day of my release. Hasn't done it since, mind you. This was just special for my launch date. Um, So I was so over the world by the time I was done with that virtual conversation that I went to bed and just didn't even bother with the champagne. So I don't know. Does that make it a great release date? Or it was just weird. It was like a balancing a lot of different things and just mostly so much relief to have it out there and out of my hands because everything prior to that point was on me. And now it's really on the readers, for them to read it, for them to hopefully enjoy it, for them to share, I have done what I can and put the story out into the world.
0: How does it feel to see this on the bookshelves?
1: So cool. (laughs) So cool. (laughs) I didn't even know how else to answer that question. I mean, it's just, it's really amazing to see something tangible, to see all of your hard work, um, and especially to see it on the shelves next to writers that you've spent years admiring. Somebody sent me a picture today of the wolf's curse in between Willow Dean by Catherine Applegate and Pax, or, or the second packs, I guess. And just to see my book on the shelf with authors of that caliber is just a really cool feeling.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and, uh, as for the cat, as someone who grew up with three of them, I know exactly mm-hmm. what that's like. And that actually seems kind of like fitting for cats.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, I guess I maybe should have expected it, but really on my launch day,
0: (laughs) of course, on your, on your, on your launch date, that's his
1: gift to me. It's really all about him. Right.
0: Cats are, cats are always plotting your downfall. I think that's a fact we've all accepted. Cats are always plotting your downfall and could have been a lot worse.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's true. And I love him so much that I will forgive him, but (laughs) Really, <laughs> <laughs> really, yeah.
0: <laughs> now you talked about doing some book signings and doing uh, the virtual the um, the virtual launch party. We're now in an, in an era where things like book festivals are starting to return. Do you have a tour planned, or is it still too kind of up in the air with you know COVID and the Delta variant?
1: Yeah, so HarperCollins isn't sponsoring any in-person activities through the rest of the year. And they still, as far as I know, haven't decided what next year's gonna look like. So I am this week doing a virtual school visit tour. So I have, I don't know, I can't remember the exact number, but somewhere around 10 school visits this week that I'm doing. And for now, that's just gonna to have to be it. I have some panels, like I'll be visiting with NCTE in October, but so far everything is virtual. So I'm hoping when book two comes out next year, I'll finally get the chance to do a proper tour.
0: Oh, definitely. Definitely. Are there any big uh, festivals or book expos in your area that you're looking to check out?
1: None that I am signed up for at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I'm in Toronto and there are some Toronto book festivals, but none that I'm going to be at.
0: Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Any that you would like to be at?
1: I mean I would love to do the Toronto Book Festival. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that they do a lot of children's books, but I have been sort of whispering in my editor's ear that if there's any way to squeeze me in in a future year, I would very much like that.
0: <laughs> I like that. It's like just, you know, if it's possible, if we can do yeah. this, you know, make it happen. I'm in please. the area. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Now, are you the type to uh, to head out to the uh, the expos?
1: Not very much, mostly just because my time and efforts have been spent working on craft and writing. So at some point, I would like to do that, but probably once the children are out of the house and maybe I have a few books under my belt.
0: I want to uh, jump back a little bit more towards uh, the characters and the world of this story. Now, uh, Gage is, a, is what's referred to as a voyant. He is able to see death, and I like the story where like, death has only encountered two other people who, uh, who can do this. Death approaches them both, says, you want to be death. One says no, the other <laughs> dies, ironically, and uh, Gage is the last like on the list. But tell me about Gage's being a voyant, how this kind of impacts his life, especially where he's only 12.
1: Yeah, he first, well, he started seeing the wolf when he was very, very young. And as you mentioned earlier, almost right away, he spots the wolf while he's in his grandpapa's shop because his grandpapa is a woodworker and he does a lot of carpentry for the entire city. And the Lord Mayor Volpine happens to be in the shop at the moment Cage looks out the door and spots the wolf and he yells wolf. And so he's accused of being a voyant. and Lord Mayor Volpine's wife happens to die that evening. And the mythology in this village is that if you spot a great white wolf, it means death is nearby. So they of course blame the death on Gage. And unfortunately, Lord Mayor Volpine sends somebody to take Gage away. And um, his grandpapa prevents that from happening. But as a result, Gage has to spend the rest of his life hiding at the back of his grandpapa's shop. So he's a very sheltered boy. His grandpapa's very kind, very loving, very smart and wise. But this is a boy who has not had a lot of human interaction for several years.
0: So he's a boy who cries wolf, but for real this time.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Funny story about that. that I'm glad that you mentioned that because my so here's the thing. I didn't actually know that I was writing a twist on The Boy Who Cries Wolf, which I know sounds funny because clearly my story is a twist on The Boy Who Cries Wolf, but it didn't even occur to me while I was writing the story. And I was talking with Sarah and she was asking me, we were just talking about how to pitch this story to editors. And she said, well, yeah, you know, you have to lead with The Boy Who Cries Wolf. And I remember... Just my complete and utter shock that I had written an entire novel that was a spin on The Boy Who Cries Wolf and somebody else had to tell me that. But I think sometimes that's the power of reading so much and the power of sort of mythology that weaves itself into us as writers that we always have that to draw from, even if we don't know sometimes that that's what we're doing.
0: Sometimes it really does take that uh, that like outside perspective to say, hey, wait a minute, this is what your book's actually about. And you realize, oh, geez, it is.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and it's exactly like my first beta reader saying, yeah, you know, your book actually has to be about death, right? You know, it's not just this fun adventure. It's like, oh, man, I didn't want to write about death. But, yeah, okay, fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I've, I've really dug with what I've read so far in the book is the way that you write. You are very good at really great dialogue and descriptions and narration. At one point, it's one line. This is from the first chapter. The Wolf says that death uh, smells like black licorice and tobacco, which I got to think if death is going to smell like anything, it's definitely that. But um, did you do a lot of like back and forth when they uh, when it came to some of the descriptions and some of like exact wording of the dialogue?
1: Not too much. No, Hmm. Um, I feel really lucky with this story. I mean my edits overall, certainly the entire book I went over many, many, many times, but for the most part, this book came to me sort of fully formed. And I heard another writer many years ago at a conference say that had happened to her with a book. And she said, you only get that once in your life. And I'm really, really panicked because if this was it, if that was my only full formed book, that means I have to go back to the struggle of writing all of my other stories. But no, the the sensory descriptions really just, came to me again, I almost felt like the wolf was gifting me this experience of what it's like to be a wolf. And so I didn't spend too much time really quizzing over what, what those.
0: One line that made, made me laugh and it probably shouldn't have is grandpapa's last words, stay away from the wolf, which poor Gage has been seeing since he was a child. It's like, well, <laughs> little <laughs> late for that uh, grandpa, but I'll do what I can.
1: Yeah. I mean, That was just a way of injecting some tension into the book, right? Because otherwise this poor boy is left to his own devices when he loses his grandpapa. I don't think that's really a spoiler since it happens very early in the story. So He had to have some reason not to trust this wolf. And at that point, he didn't know why his grandpapa would even know of the wolf's existence, because presumably his grandpapa couldn't see the wolf. So that was a way of injecting a little bit of tension. But yeah, I'm glad to hear that it made you laugh because it is that that's the fun part about this story, all those little one liners that are kind of just slipped in there. I think one of my favorite lines is the part where the great white wolf talks about how ridiculous it is to carry a rabbit's foot for good luck when, of course, you're carrying a dead rabbit's foot to protect you from death. <laughs>
0: Irony. So, I like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: If it's not too much of a spoiler, how do Gage and the wolf get along?
1: Well, their relationship is very antagonistic because all Gage knows really is that his grandpapa wanted him to stay away from the wolf. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know why the wolf is hanging around, why the wolf is continually stalking him. He just wants it to stop. And of course, the wolf is responsible for all of the misery in his life, for the fact that he wasn't able to work in the shop with his grandpapa and that he was alienated from the villagers. So he has a lot of really deep-seated animosity toward this wolf. And of course, the wolf is frustrated because she doesn't understand why, now that this boy has been orphaned in is alone and has nobody else clearly if he would just listen to her all of his problems could be solved
0: (laughs) yeah i'm thinking not quite so much but (laughs) it's a good it's a good sales pitch i like that (laughs) yeah Um, yeah (laughs) why choose the wolf to be the narrator for the story i really liked that perspective
1: For me, it couldn't have been any other way simply because of how I approached the story, because the premise was always to write a story with death as the narrator. So it never even occurred to me. In fact, I didn't know until after that second draft was written that the wolf wasn't the main character. In my head, writing the draft, she was always the main character. And it wasn't until I started doing revisions that I went, oh, wait a minute. Gage is actually my main character. Oh, okay. I need to think about how I switch things up then, because... Yeah, he's, he's my guy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Gage's kind of role in a story. Is it hero or something else?
1: That's a really good question. I don't want to give away the ending. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I'm going to say that, I mean, in a classic hero's journey so- then yes, of course, he's the hero, because he's the one who's driving the plot of the story. But in terms of whether Gage actually turns out to be a hero, I think the story is more nuanced than that. You'll find when you get to the end that, um, you know, heroes aren't so easily defined.
0: Going back a bit on your own writing experience, what got you into writing in the first place? Because you mentioned that you got your MBA from Columbia.
1: Something really interesting happened while I was at Columbia Business School. I took a class that was called Creativity and Personal Mastery. And it was not a business school class, but it was taught by a marketing PhD professor by the name of Shriki Mar Rao. And he has a really great book on creativity. And his class was really designed to help you figure out what your best life is and learn how to live your best life and find happiness. So he's sort of this self-help guru that he managed to convince Columbia Business School to let him do this class. And I was thinking, well, that's pretty cool. I'd like to check it out. So I took the Class, and one of the assignments was to design your ideal career. And I had started out in film and television on the production side of things, and I had went back to business school thinking that I wanted to go the studio route and be more of like a film and television executive. So that was what I went into business school thinking. But to be quite honest, I wasn't all that enamored with business school. Um, it was fine, I guess it was business school, but that clearly was not my passion. So when I was assigned this assignment. We had a week and we were supposed to design our ideal job. And we were supposed to design it down to the very last detail. We had to produce an exact schedule of what our day would look like, what we would eat, where we would go, what we would be wearing, who we would be interacting with. And so I kept trying to design this job as getting a job at, you know, Pixar or Disney or different studios. And I just didn't really find any joy in that. Like it just wasn't working. And so I started to really think about like, what would my perfect life look like? And the only thing that kept coming to me was I really love to write and I love books. And I had always loved books. I read a lot as a child. And so I finally just allowed myself to go with it. I was like, well, I'm not getting graded on the quality of job that I choose. So I can write anything. So I just designed my ideal career as being this children's book author. And I turned that in. And and then I went on and got my MBA and um, it took several more years before I was at a place in my life where I was able to sit back and go, you know, I still remember that assignment. And if I don't give that a shot, I am always going to regret it. And that was the point 14 years ago where I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to publish a book.
0: And here we are now. It's published <laughs> and published in probably like the biggest way possible, I think.
1: Certainly a very, it, yeah, way beyond <laughs> my wildest imaginations.
0: Let's say an author comes to you. They are an inspiring writer. They haven't actually published anything yet. And they say, you know, how can I make like your dream happen for me?
1: Well, I think there are two things. One is to decide that you're never going to give up. And because the only way to make sure you fail is to give up, right? The only way that success is a possibility is if you keep going. So number one, you just have to decide that you're okay with the constant rejection. I mean, I received, I think, 120 rejections before I signed with my first agent, you have to be okay with the constant no's, just decide that you're not going to let anything stop you. But the other thing is, for me, once I wrote that first novel, and I I realized that I didn't have any idea how to write a novel. It was this decision that I was going to treat it as a career, even though I didn't have a book deal, even though I wasn't making money, it was something that I had to dedicate myself to. In the same way that you wouldn't go become an open heart surgeon without learning to do surgery, writing is a craft and there is a way that our brain as humans are wired to absorb an experience story. And so the more you can learn, about the craft of writing and about how that works, then the more you can use that as a useful tool in your own writing, once you know the rules, you can break the rules. We've all heard that, but it takes a lot of work to get there. So my advice to aspiring writers is just and get to work.
0: I like that. A couple more questions for you. Um, I know that in addition to you know being a, now a full-time writer, you also had the Magic in the Middle video series, which is recorded book talks to help educators introduce young readers to new stories. How did all that come about?
1: I started Magic in the Middle about a year ago, and I realized that I read a ridiculous amount. I read constantly. As you can probably tell by one of the many bookshelves behind me, I read almost exclusively middle grade literature because I love it and because that helps me, again, improve my craft to know what's out there and see what other writers are doing. And so I have all of this knowledge of all these stories in my head. And at the same time, I recognize that it can become really paralyzing to find good books or books that are interesting to you. So I wanted to do something with some of this reading that I was doing. So I pick one book every month and I just do a short book talk so that readers can maybe pick up or learn about a story that they might not otherwise have come across or considered.
0: And when it comes to reading a new book, do you read it like to the end, no matter how bad it might be? Or do you sort of give it to a certain point where you say, okay, I'm done. Next book?
1: I used to read books all the way through, no matter what. I find that now my time is just way too precious and limited to have the luxury of doing that. What I do though, before I give up on a book, is I try to figure out, especially for Magic in the Middle, I try to figure out is this book not? working for me because I don't like the craft, I don't like the writing style, is there something inherently flawed in my opinion with the book? Or am I not resonating with this book because I'm not market? target? Because I am a white middle-aged woman, maybe this book would resonate with a different reader. And so I try to be really conscious about my inherent biases reading when I'm picking books for Magic in the Middle in particular, but also in my own reading because reading outside of our lane, if you will, I think is really important in our development as human beings and, and citizens and um certainly just part of of excellent reading and and being well-rounded as a reader.
0: Does Gage reflect you at all as a person?
1: I I think to some extent. I mean, I had a very difficult childhood growing up. We had a very transient childhood. I moved almost 24 times before fourth grade. So I was very lonely. I often felt very alienated. There was a lot of fear involved in my childhood. So I think to the extent that Gage is this sweet, naive, lonely boy, that yes, he probably reflects quite a bit of me.
0: Well, Jessica, I have really enjoyed talking to you, and I am, of course, thoroughly enjoying the book, but what is next for you?
1: Well, I can't say too much about book two, but what I can tell you is that it's coming out a year from now. It is a loose companion novel to The Wolf's Curse in the sense that it is set in a neighboring country in relatively the same time frame. However, it has a completely different set of magic. So there is no Grim Reaper, there is no wolf, but there is another animal, and there is a different set of magic. And I will just say this, it is almost the exact opposite of The Wolf's Curse, but also a perfect complement.
0: Excellent. Well, I, I definitely look forward to reading that. And for the folks at home, if, if you haven't uh, gotten your copy, pick it up, The Wolf's Curse. You can go to Jessica Vitalis, V I T A L I S for more information on how to order it and to learn more about the author. And Jessica, I sincerely look forward to talking to you about book two.
1: I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Hey, this is singer, songwriter, and mental health advocate, Stephanie Mathias. Be sure to check out my single Hero Side, available on all platforms now, and listen to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best indie artists.
0: Okay, everyone, that brings this episode to a close. Big thanks to Jessica for joining me, and I really hope you check out The Wolf's Curse. I've been reading it, and I love the story. You can follow this show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout, and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com, and find this show wherever you check out podcasts. And every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. As always, keep those ears open. Picture this. You finished your first book and nailed it. The plot, the characters, all the twists and turns. This one's a winner, and all you need is the right cover. If you've got my art skills, this is the part where panic usually sets in. Enter the cover villain. Hero to writers everywhere. Founded by noted author Remy Flagg, Cover Villain focuses on composite image covers for science fiction and fantasy writers. Give them the details and they'll craft a cover using popular trends that everyone will want to see. But wait, you say, I've got ideas of my own. No problem, as Cover Villain loves a good collaboration. As they say, our goal is to put a little villain in every cover we make. Want to know more? Then head to CoverVillain.com and follow them on Facebook and Instagram.